Listener Production. Communicate. Be open to communicating. And the more you do, the better it will be. Know what turns you on and be specific. You know, if someone's doing something to you, because your wonderful bodies are so much more sensitive than ours as men, guys just need to be a lot more gentle and you need to tell them, you know, be gentle now, be harder now, and feel free to do that. And he will appreciate that as well. And clearly defining what you want and more importantly, what you don't want and being firm about it. Just do that to start with. (laughs) For this episode, I'm joined by former male escort, Mitch Larson. Mitch lived the regular life of a married father until a snap decision in his 40s changed his life when he embarked on a journey of being paid to love as a professional sex worker. Before being a male escort, Mitch was a lawyer and a professional photographer. Mitch shares his story in a new book called Time For Her, which I've read and I must say it was toe curling at times. So I couldn't wait to get Mitch into the studio to answer this week's big question, what goes through the mind of a male escort? Now, before we get started, a gentle content warning. We do cover some pretty spicy things. So the language and the content is a little bit, whoo. Oh, Mitch, I'm excited to talk to you. I have so many questions, but let me start with the, the big one first of all is, what goes through your mind when you meet a client for the first time? Oh, when I first meet the client, everything's okay. It's what goes through my mind before I meet the client. The sheer anxiety and the nerves and the need to do a good job. That's what goes through it beforehand. That's after all the primping and preening and all the all the meticulous looking after myself, things that I do. When I meet the client, it's like, I'd say probably 50% of the nerves just drop. I just see who I'm going to meet. I give her a big hug and then we just talk to each other and we just become friends. That's how it works. Ultimately, it's relief that it's the booking has actually started, basically. See, I find that intriguing that for you in the lead up, you're really nervous and you're thinking, will she like me? That's it. Yep, definitely, yeah. One of the first things I asked after how you're feeling is, do I look okay? You know, do I look like my pictures? Am I what you wanted? I do get nervous about that because I'm just a guy in a crazy job that just wants to do it well. (laughs) But you say, I mean, because it is a crazy job. You've written this incredible memoir, which I devoured in 24 hours. And (laughs) because there's a really a voyeuristic side, I think, to all of us that are intrigued by what it is that is actually involved in being an escort. And what really struck me reading your book is... For you, it is about connection and kindness, and that surprised me. But it surprised you that that was part of the job? Yes. a big part of the job? Well, for you, that it was a big part of you doing the job that you wanted to do properly. Because Mm. there is that, dare I say, I suppose, sleazy Mm -hmm. idea of what escorting involves and Mm -hmm. a judgment about what that world looks like. So Mm. when I read your story 
and read about the thought that would go into before you would meet a client and then the importance of you connecting with that woman, that was what surprised me, Mitch. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think, as I said that in the book, that the, the only way to do a good job for me is to be kind and to relate to the client that I'm with and learn all about them. Before the job, I just try and just you know, close my mind off and just think, okay, don't think about the physical aspects of the job. Just go in there and just get excited to learn about a new person, learn all about their lives, learn about what's making them tick, and then things just follow from there. So as far as the kindness is concerned, it's, it's kind of sad that all I need to do is just show a bit of kindness and that's automatically something that's unusual for the client that I'm with because they've been so starved of it. Um, not, not in all cases, but in the majority, they've just really lacked attention and validation and love and that's really not that hard to sort of elicit from yourself. That, I think, is almost at the heart of what you do and what you write about because for a lot of women, not generalising, but for, I suppose, a lot of women that you've seen, they've lost touch with themselves, with the sensual side of themselves and it may be because either they've been in a terribly abusive relationship, their partner might have died, any number of things, but they've lost that part of who they are. And you sort of reawaken that, don't you? I find that I do. And How? Like, how do you do that? I I wish I had a a formula or or a checklist I could pass on. Um, Oh, I think you do, though, because you've got, I mean, from... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I want to let our listeners know that we are going to be talking in graphic terms. And see, I'm blushing okay. as I say it, but, oh, good. but, okay. but you Bring talk a lot about oral sex in your memoir. I do. And how yeah. you enjoy that. And for a lot of women, they enjoy, I suppose, the pleasure that it gives you that you're giving them. Absolutely. Yeah, women are like that, I find. They, they derive pleasure from pleasure and I derive pleasure from pleasure, so which can cause a little bit of conflict when it comes to oral on me. I can't remember if I wrote in the book. I think I Yes, did, you did. Yeah, like I feel pressure to appear pleased, so they are pleased. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a funny little scenario, but I think I've always just loved women. I've always just basically just loved their bodies. I mean, I'm just, I've always been a very sexual person and... When you were talking before about them losing a part of themselves, I think that is so, so common. It's just it, more than anyone would imagine, you know, you're getting into your sort of, say, your, your early to late 40s and you've been married for a while and sex just takes a back seat. It's just sort of this little thing in the back of your mind. And then I think when people booked me and things flowed and, and they realised that I was genuinely enjoying being with them, it did unlock something that they haven't felt in a long time and, and it just it felt wonderful for me and for them. It was great. Because there's a beautiful film that I loved called Good Luck to Leo Grand, starring the extraordinary Emma Thompson and it's about an older woman hiring a male escort and he unlocks this part of her that she never knew was there. And it's such a moving film and I hadn't expected to be moved in the way that I was watching it. Yeah, it's, it was a great film. I can't remember, I don't think I know when there's been a film that's been so accurate for male escorts. You know, her character was a little bit overly inquisitive. I mean, you get people that do pursue your real identity a lot. She was a pretty bad client, I've got to admit. Um, and he was a little bit 
kind of a little bit too cold, but just based on how I worked. It was a very good film, I agree. And, and, and what you said before about it, unlocking something within her, that is exactly it. The way, you know, the final scene when she's just looking at herself and she's just happy with what she sees. It's almost like she sees herself as I see my clients. You know, it's like, it's great. I love, a, you know, a bit of cellulite, you know, the look of a mother and it's beautiful. Well, let's talk a bit more about that because you said as well that you love women's bodies. And what I have found doing the podcast is so many women that I've spoken to, high profile women, women who you look at and you think they're divine. They have insecurities about how Mm. they feel within their skin and their bodies. Mm. What is it that you see when you look at a woman's body? Are you as, I suppose, exacting or as judgmental about a woman's shape as we are on ourselves? To be honest, the perfect body for me is, well, for society, is actually not overly attractive for me. If you're absolutely shredded, you know, very little body fat and stuff, there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. And I know I admire athletes, but the look of a woman that's gone through life, who has given birth, who has, you know, the necks that you're also obsessed with hiding when they get a little bit, you know, a little bit wrinkly and things. I just see... Um, someone that I admire that's gone through a lot and deserves love. And that turns me on, and that turned me on in the job, to be honest, yeah. I think in a way that's refreshing for people to hear because there is often this expectation that you have to look a certain way to be sexy and desirable Mm. and desired. Yeah. To look sexy, you need to feel sexy. So I think women shouldn't be afraid to show a bit of skin in their 50s and beyond, you know. Like, legs are always, you know, attractive things and, you know, a little bit of grey is okay and, you know, sagging breasts. It's just part of it. If you sort of just carry yourself with pride and recognise, you know, you're a mature woman who's lived life and, and lift your shoulders up and stuff, you are sexy. And I wish I could get that word out enough. <laughs> It's, so yeah. <laughs> what would be, I suppose, then your message for women that, in terms of how they can feel sexy or perhaps recapture that part of themselves that they, you know, maybe in their 20s or that they had and that they yearn to capture that again? Mm, yeah. How can it's, we do that? I guess it's a... It's very, very difficult to change how you think about yourself. Obviously, you look in the mirror and you say, oh, there's me again, that sort of thing. I think you just have to make a definitive choice and just say, all right, I'm going to talk to that guy in the gym, you know, or today I'm going to smack my husband on the bum or something like that, you know, just get a bit playful and don't, oh, I wish I had the perfect words to tell you, but it's just a, it's something intrinsically that you need to decide to love yourself again. And it's something you really need to just find in yourself and just to change and just to maybe if you're single, just assume that, you know, the person you're going to talk to might want to talk to you back. Just give it a go because more often than not, the guys will be like, oh, okay, or the girls or whoever you're interested might be like, oh, okay, yeah, and start thinking about it and, and you'll feel it. So to just go for it. And speaking of just going for it, how did you become a male escort? It was a very rash decision. I was uh, married and I'd had a little text affair with somebody and I felt absolutely horrible about it. I, I, was, I was a complete prick. I, I was hiding messages and, you know, it was sort of sexting and things and it was just low behaviour. Anyway, uh, my wife found out and it, I may as well have had a physical affair. It was just as traumatic for her. So we sort of 
negotiate our way through that. And as a part of that, I was saying, you know, I feel a little bit unfulfilled in the bedroom. You know, I, I never want to cheat on anyone physically. And so I just said, you know, would you mind maybe if, if I slept with someone else, you know? So she researched it to the nth degree. She looked into, you know, various forums and, you know, the viability of an open marriage. And uh, to my surprise, she said, okay, all right, well, let's give it a go. That's so, pretty amazing. It was, it was. She's Because I've got to say, from person. a female perspective, if yeah. someone suggested that to me, I don't think I'd be anywhere near as sort of open and, okay, I'll do some research about this. Yeah, I guess. But as marriages go on and there is a clear imbalance with sex drive, there's always going to be conflict. So for her and for anyone, I think that needs to be addressed before anyone starts doing anything. You know, you, you need, you know, if you go to couples therapy or whatever, you do need to start addressing it and speaking openly and frankly. It's like, all right, well, I, you know, I was really hoping I'd get it today, but again, I'm not getting it. I'm really disappointed. And just talk to each other about it. And miraculous, not miraculous, because she's a wonderful woman. You know, I'm still very good friends with her. She just agreed. So I did sleep with someone briefly and it was, you know, it was okay. But it, it sort of awakened something in me as we were talking before. It was the strangest messages that I thought overnight of just doing it after someone suggested I was quite a sexual person. And then I said it, I asked her in the morning and, and she was like, you know, oh, all right, well, yeah, I, I guess so, which is incredible in itself. But she So you said to her, how would you feel if I was a male escort? Yeah. You just um, came out and said it. I did, yeah. Wow. In the morning. I know, I know. In the morning, I just said it after thinking about it at night. And she recognised that I hadn't contributed financially to the household, you know, for a long time. I'd had a few photographic jobs, but I felt really sort of demasculated by not bringing home some money. So, uh, and I spoke to her about it, you know, several years afterwards. And neither of us realised how big it would be. So she just thought it would just be a bit of a side gig. I'd bring in a few extra bucks here or there. And that's what I thought. I'd never done it before. I didn't know anything about it. And before we knew it, it started taking over my whole life. It was huge. So what does it involve? Does it always have to have a sex component? Or is it just as you write about sort of a boyfriend experience? What is involved in your job? Um, It's whatever the client wants. There's the option of sex is always there, usually there anyway, Um, unless, you know, specifically I get the feeling that we're not going to click. But I just follow what the client wants to do. And it's just a very normal, gradual process. It's like going on a date, but with clear boundaries that I will stop when I'm told to stop or I will, you know, lead when that's those sort of cues come up. There's a lot of talking, there's laughing, there's a lot of cuddling. And yeah, the sex is just an icing on the cake sometimes for both of us. Sort of like a um, the two of us sort of just finally consummating is probably... The sort of word for it, but without a marriage sort of thing. So it just consummates what we've been through already. And we just, you know, for want of a better word, love each other for that time. You see, saying that I find intriguing because to me the idea of love is something that endures. Whereas, Mm. I mean, some of your clients you might be one-offs, but others you've seen for many years and Mm. are sort of regulars. Is it love or is it a different type of connection? Or lust? No, the lust actually, like in any sort of relationship, that drops away sometimes, um, in most times. It it does form 
a love, I believe, definitely. There's bonding, there's caring. You know, with the, with the regulars, I would message them, you know, out of work a lot of the time. They would check in with me uh, and I would often guide them through difficult times that they're having and it was long-term relationships. So, yeah, I'd definitely call it love for sure, which is probably breaking boundaries. I know what's blurring boundaries, sorry. That's my fault, I know, and it's not the way it should be done, but I think that's sort of how it sort of transpired when I did it. And with those boundaries, because you, I'm talking to you as Mitch, I'm saying Mitch, Mm -hmm. but your real name's Dan, Mm -hmm. and then when you would be meeting your clients, they'd know you as Mitch, but then you'd later talk about yourself as Dan. Yes, definitely. I actually did that often before even meeting them because I made it sort of a condition that I would speak to them over the phone just to make sure we sort of had the same goals, for want of a better word, goals, but the same idea of what the night would be like. And as soon as I could trust them, as soon as I knew that they were respectful, I would say, oh, and by the way, I know this is a bit weird, but, you know, would you possibly be able to call me Dan? Because it just, it just makes me feel a little bit better when we meet each other. And I don't have to put up an act or I don't have to feel like I'm putting up an act. So, yeah, that's what I used to do. And what about now? I mean, I've been calling you Mitch, but would mm-hmm. you prefer I called you Dan now or you're comfortable that I call you Mitch? It's up to you. Okay. What would you like to call me? Oh, like my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I'd prefer Dan, to be honest. Okay. I, I would. Yeah, okay. I would. That'd be nice. Huh? Yeah, well, Dan, it's Dan from now on. You, you. also mentioned the... Long-term relationships. I'd love to talk with you about a few of those that you mention in your book. Yeah. One of them is with an older woman who is in her 70s. Mm-hmm. And you write about that. Initially, you're unsure about how you felt about seeing a woman considerably older than you. Mm, yeah. That was definitely new territory for me. But she was just like any other client. She was someone that I bonded with, someone that I learned a lot about. I learned a lot about the trauma she'd had as a child, what she'd gone through with an ex-husband who passed away, uh, and what she wanted out of me. And that first meeting was almost surreal. We hugged and we danced together for a long time, and she was incredibly nervous. I think it had been about 12 years she'd actually had sex with anybody. She walked out of the room at one point and, and I sort of knew she was geeing herself up for something. And then she just came in and she said, oh, all right, could you lead me to the bedroom? And then it was just, you know, lights off. She had negligee on. It was just very slow, gentle going. But it was a loving careness. And loving careness is what, frankly, gets me hard, <laughs> to be honest. So it was just a beautiful, beautiful night. And continuing to see her was, was lovely, yeah. So you unlocked a part of her life that she hadn't, and a part of herself that she hadn't enjoyed for such a long time. That's right, yeah. She'd had a lot of issues when it came to taking over the company that, that her late husband had run, and there was just a lot of tension and a lot of conflict within her that she was unfaithful to somebody that was no longer alive. And I, I totally understood that too. So I didn't pretend to be anything I wasn't. It was just very slow, gentle going. And, and eventually she started walking around, you know, with you know, slightly shorter dresses on and she took a real shine to, to the new person that she was. It was really nice to see. And that's very important to you. And that comes across in your book that you 
each time you sort of leave, I don't know if, if job is the right word, but a, a, an encounter, that mm. it's important for you that your client has had a really special time. Very much so, yeah. If I was thinking on the way here about how I felt before bookings and I, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I'd always say close the door to the hotel room I was in, in or whatever and I'd sort of look up in the sky like whatever was ruling us and just hoping that it would that when I walked back in that room at the end of that night whether it was a good night that I'd made a difference and the person that I was with had had a good time and was happy that's all I wanted so I guess I just as you say it is a job and it, and it was a job and I just wanted to do the best job I possibly could and another person who formed a big part of your life for a period of time you call Sam and mm-hmm. She had early onset Alzheimer's. That's right. So tell us a little bit about how that unfolded. Uh, Sam contacted me without telling me anything about that, just as a as a regular client, and everything was going to plan. So I was, you know, getting ready. I think it was the day before I was to meet her. Uh, I got a message from one of her friends just explaining what the situation was. She had few years to live and she had you know, some small kids and the husband wasn't around anymore and um, she wasn't really interested in dating because sadly enough it was pointless. Uh, she had an allowance she could spend on certain things and she wanted me to be one of them and that relationship just went through ebbs and flows of confusion and, and love and it was a unique very difficult but beautiful, beautiful relationship that we had. I hadn't really thought about that until I read it in your book that when someone is faced with an illness like that, Mm. that idea that they still don't want to say again goodbye to that side of themselves and they don't want to lose that part of themselves. So to still be able to tap into that is so important. Mm. And I Mm. hadn't really thought about that before. Yeah. Well, she was in her early 40s at the time, so there was, she was very sexual. I always say women get their most sexual in their late 40s and it increases from there. Um, you're more of an expert than I am on that topic. So, um, but <laughs> well, I'm going that, through menopause, so I don't know. <laughs> menopause is a very sexy time too, though. Plenty of women going through menopause and, oh, the tears that flow and the, the it's a... It's a beautiful time, I think. Aww. (laughs) It is. It's a confusing time for you, but it's a time that's uniquely female and, and beautiful as well at the same time. What about as well some of your more bizarre encounters? What would be the most bizarre, Dan? The most bizarre. I could tell you, well, you've read the uh, the the cat lady one. <laughs> Share that with our listeners because I was thinking, oh, I didn't like the way that you weren't liking the cat on the bed. Well, well <laughs> Jazzy scratched my ass, so I didn't like Jazzy. I had to get rid of the damn thing. And and the client preferred Jazzy to me. That's That was one of the most insulting things. <laughs> And when I got my, I'm not going to reveal the end of the chapter, but when I got my own back at good old Jazzy, it was a, it was a great feeling. Oh, <laughs> if anyone who's concerned, Jazzy is okay. Oh, Jazzy's Jazzy fine. is okay. What about as well, Dan, when you talk about early on when you began escorting, 
that you agreed to be part of a couple sort of scenario, which is no longer your thing, but no. perhaps share with, with our listeners a little bit about that time. Yeah, I didn't know my boundaries, didn't know my limits, what I was capable of, and all the other guys saw couples, so I thought, oh, well, that's what we do. And they were fun, you know, I saw photos of them and they were sort of a party sort of couple. But um, it just, the dynamics for me, I prefer one-on-one. I want to I want to make a difference to the person I'm with and I want that person to be female. I'm sorry, I'm not bi. As I'm, a lot of people criticise me for not being bi, but I prefer female one-on-one and I want to make a difference to one person. And my focus is on women and if there's a man in the room that's getting a kick out of it or... It's the wrong sort of dynamics for me. You know, we had a good time. You know, there was, there was nudity, there was a bit of fun here or there or anything, but it didn't have the magic for me that one-on-one interactions do. So I chose not to anymore after that. And what about to the woman who had very strong thighs? That was actually kind of scary. I was, that actually made me really annoyed. I think she, she had a thing, like a, a fetish for overpowering a man. I think she'd planned it and put me in that position. So basically, I'm going down on her and she wraps her legs around me and just literally starts, you know, choking me. So if I wasn't a stronger sort of person, I would have, it got quite scary. So I had to flip her over and just extract myself from her. Uh, And then just, I was furious because it had crossed the boundary and it scared me for a second. And that's totally unacceptable in this industry. So that was a bad booking, you could put it, definitely. So not one of the better ones. Hmm. What I'm also really interested in is, again, how you're able to, okay, you think about your physical safety, but your emotional safety. We spoke a little bit earlier about the Mitch and Dan, but Mm. how can you really stop so many of those incredible connections from what you've said bleeding over into your everyday life and not taking over? I think the problem was I didn't at all. Um, I really found it hard to switch off. If someone was having difficulty with their husband who was being abusive or, you know, had gone on a date and something really bad had happened to them, I found I, I was up at night thinking about these things a lot. Probably that was because I was living alone at the time throughout that whole period and, and things just ruminated through my head and I allowed people to text me when they wanted and, and I said, look, if I can't get back to you, don't be offended, but I will. But, you know, people would fill me in on things that had happened on the, during their day and, and I just found myself naturally just replying and, and becoming more and more involved. Ultimately, yeah, that did lead to a bit of burnout. Um, I had a few people once going through some really serious things I just had to turn my phone off and then I'd turn it on and then it'd be like, oh, are you okay? Where are you? Da, da, da. Well, you know, people chasing me up and I, and I just had to just shut down and meditate for a little while and then just eventually turn the phone back on and then just gradually get back into being Mitch. So how I did it is, wasn't the ideal way to do it, but there's no rule books, there's no course or tape course for being a sex worker, which there should be, to teach us how to do that. I just thought as a typical man, no, I can take it. No, it's fine. And just sort of dug my heels in and just kept at it until eventually I just, you know, almost blew. So, yeah, it was very difficult. You talk about, you know, that difficulty. There was also obviously difficulties talking to your family about what you did and telling your parents. And for a long time you kept it secret, didn't you? Yeah, I did. And, And I hated that. Even now, the feeling of everyone knowing is another weight off my shoulders. It's so nice. 
But with my parents, I was, you know, getting flown over to, to Italy and to Germany and all these international trips. And all I was meant to be was a photographer. And so things just started not adding up. This was after, you know, about maybe nine or 10 months into the job. And, you know, one day I just had to tell them. I just couldn't keep up a lie. It was, it was dreadful. So I just sat down and uh, in the book I say, you know, I've got to tell you about my job. Um, and mum said, oh, what are you doing? Walking the streets, are you? Sort of chuckling. And it's like, well, that was the perfect opening to say, well, not that, but spot on, mum. Yeah. <laughs> and I told them. And it was really hard for mum. And I'd left the relationship with my ex a few months before. And my dad straight away sort of blamed me for being, you know, he didn't know what it was, why I'd left it or anything or what I'd been going through. And he blamed me straight away. Oh, you're very selfish. You haven't even bothered trying to, you know, to, to reconcile with your family and you've just walked off. And look, to an extent that's true. But the reality was I was by myself, just away from my son, crying every night, um, just missing my family more than anything and being blamed for being a bad person when I didn't think I really was. I just felt it was my path and I followed it and tried to minimise the damage as best I could. Uh, and revealing to them what I did, just it felt wonderful. It felt like a huge weight off my shoulders and it, as it continues to, as, as, I, as people now learn what I've done. And how are your parents now about it? Do they ask you or do they sort of ignore? I said this to mum and mum and dad the other day. I've never loved them more than I love them now. Um, they have been so supportive. They are so just proud of me. I think now that I'm, I've exited the industry and I've written a book, I think that's obviously a great thing for them. But they did ask me questions. You know, mum, mum not so much and I understand why, but dad was saying, oh, you know, where, where are you travelling to this week to see regular clients interstate? Uh, you know, and dad would be saying, oh, how's it going? You know, is there anything too serious going on? And I'd sort of keep it sort of fairly light and say, oh, yeah, well, I've had, you know, an issue with so-and-so's ex-husband being like this. And, you know, so I wouldn't say the actual names, obviously, but they knew the sort of clients I saw. And he was genuinely interested. Mum, not as much. But I'm just so lucky with the support network that I've had around me throughout the whole time. And my parents have just been absolutely phenomenal. And going through, going through what we've all been through with my bizarre life decisions, I think it's only brought us closer together. Uh, my whole family, including my sister as well. It's nice. And you're a dad yourself. You I have am. a son. Yeah. So what will you tell him about what you did? It's all slowly unraveling a little bit more and more now that the book's out. Initially, he thought I was a therapist in a way. He just, as I said to him, you know, what do you think I do? And it was a question that I wanted to ask him but was scared to ask him. And I was like, oh, what do you think your daddy does for a living? And he said, I don't know. You just make people feel good, don't you? And, and it was just beautiful. It's like, that's exactly what I do. You just, you just hit the nail on the head. So he knew that. But then later on, both his mother and I have, gently introduced age-appropriate sex talk. So things mainly about consent, which is so important at this age to start talking about. So talking about, you know, you're not allowed to touch others' bodies and nobody's allowed to touch yours unless you say it's okay. And now that the book's come out, I've just said, you know, that there will be a few people that won't like what the book's about because, you know, part of my therapy involved touching and massaging and, you know, you just need to be aware of that. And uh, if anyone 
tries to make you feel bad. I want you to tell me straight away so we can sort of talk to them more about and help them understand, you know, where I'm coming from. So it's a very, it's uncharted territory for almost anyone to, to try and get through this with such a young child. But I think it's important. I think, I think that is a huge, a huge ambition of mine is to start educating young men about affirmative consent. So I'm starting with him. Which is so, so important that you're doing that. And also to, you know, talking about consent, when you write about your encounters with your clients, time and time again, you say that, you ask your clients, yeah. is this okay? Yeah. Do you want me to do this? Do I stop? That's yep. very much part of what your role was, wasn't Absolutely. it, Dan? Definitely, definitely. That needs to be second nature for men now. We need to even if we're drunk off our heads, you know, we need to have a little part of the back of our minds now just thinking, as much as I want this girl in front of me, I need to ask, is this okay? I, I just need to continually ask, you know. Given how the affirmative consent laws are rightly being introduced now, it's something that parents need to start talking about for their son's own safety and for their, their daughter's own safety. And this is so vitally important with our generation, especially when it comes to the internet, with sexting, with all these sorts of things. Now is when we need to start really nailing it down with these kids. At the moment, the shocking domestic abuse out there is way more than anyone would ever imagine, I'm sure. We need to start now by, this is how to prevent it, by educating this generation or else we're just going to go down the same track for the next 20 years. So that's my ambitions. And a number of your clients too had gone through family abuse, sexual abuse, and very difficult other things in their lives, and yep. you very much helped them rediscover themselves, didn't you? Oh, I'd like to think I helped them rediscover. I, I, think, I think the best I did was maybe make them feel more comfortable putting themselves out there, I suppose. Just letting them know what to look for and what to expect in a date and what's unacceptable. You can let them know that it's okay and there are safe guys out there that you can be loved again. Although the pain will persist from what happened, maybe you don't let that define you. That's the best I could hope to have achieved, I think. What made you decide to leave, Dan? Um... There was a lot of burnout. I did meet someone, which was quite nice. <laughs> um, so you're in love and then decided to leave? I was on the way out to begin with, to be honest. I was finding that I had a few regulars that I was seeing, that I'd seen for years, and I got the feeling that I might have been doing more damage than good because if I didn't say goodbye, I think they wouldn't have moved on on their own. They needed to know that they could survive on their own without my support. And, and they knew that as well. They sort of started like pushing back a little bit, but not wanting to push back. So I sort of had to help them to say goodbye. That was going for, you know, sort of like the last year, year and a half that I was doing the job. And then meeting someone as I was saying goodbye was like the universe saying, this is your direction now. And then as the book was coming out, I thought, all right, now is the time. You know, I need to commit to somebody. I have a lovely person. I have company almost every night. You know, I hadn't had that for four years. She's got um, some beautiful children. They get along really well with my son. It's a happy ending in a way. It's just, it's lovely. It's really nice. 
Oh, that's so beautiful. Because you ask yourself, am I a good man? Yeah. How would you answer that question? I think I am. I am a good man. I've been reading a lot of feedback from some of the media that I've done, and the word that keeps popping up is delusional. I think that's from men a lot of the time. But Delusional not, in what <clears throat> way? Well, that's what they said. I think they think I'm just a player or I'm a con artist, things like that, that I don't genuinely have the care that I have for people. But I do. I really do. I'm not Buddhist, but if I was going to be anything, I would be. You know, I don't walk on ants, for example. I don't kill flies. I pick up rubbish and I teach my son to pick up rubbish and the concept of karma. I think inherently I I am a good man and I, I need to believe I'm a good man or I'll hate myself and I don't particularly want to do that anymore, um, which I did for a fair while. So when you say you used to hate yourself, was that when you were doing escorting work? Yeah, it was. I was questioning whether I was misogynistic. Was I this man that wanted to have all these regulars want me but and only me? And, you know, was I being selfish? Was I being controlling? All these things ran through my mind. And I often did question, you know, was I in it for the right reasons? So there were some pretty low moments when I would lay awake at night and just just wonder what sort of a person I was. And at the end of the book, I do ask that question and I believe I am. And I believe I still have a lot of good to do outside of the job. Would you ever go back to it, do you think? No, I don't think I would, no. I think that's something that I was good at. It was great at at that time of my life. It allowed me to be the therapist I've always wanted to be. It made me feel wanted and valued. But I think I I now want to make a difference to a wider sort of audience now and something that doesn't involve having an erection, (laughs) essentially, which is one of the big concerns of the job. (laughs) (laughs) I got to admit. And speaking of that, Early I would want to say something Yes, <laughs> early on in your career, you did a porno. I tried. <laughs> um, and gee, I take my hats off to the guys that can do it. I tried and I failed. I was no good. Apparently, I was a good actor. But when it came to the acting that was needed, no, no, I just could not perform. And the stress involved in that, I had no sleep the night before. And then the, the day of it, I was just petrified and then it came down to it and <laughs> it was just a nightmare. You know, I went for a walk and, and I was sitting there looking off the cliffs in Bondi, I think it was a Bronte or somewhere, and, you know, I rang my wife because we were still together and she's like, it's okay, you know, you can do it. She was really incredibly supportive. It, this is yeah. your wife. Oh, she I know. is a saint. Oh, my God. <laughs> it, it's just phenomenal. She tried to sort of G me up and... I just couldn't do it to save my life. Just the pressure and just there was no connection with my my gorgeous co-star and I just failed dismally. <laughs> it was just terrible. So the guys that can do it, I, I have so much admiration for. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, I've got to confess, the only <laughs> porno I've ever watched was a very long time ago and the man had a beret on. It was not remotely... <laughs> <laughs> Just a beret? <laughs> Sexual or anything. It was like he had a beret and he was on a yacht. I'm like, this is what? not. <laughs> a man with a beret on a yacht. Yeah. Okay. No. No wonder not. you didn't get into it. <laughs> or did you? I don't know. Not at all. I'm like, well, I do not see the fuss with all of this stuff. That's so funny you recall that part of it. The man had a beret on. <laughs> 
Have you got a thing for berets, or no. now you now you've got a now you've got a thing against berets? <laughs> I just remember it's like it's like oh dear. You can leave your beret on. <laughs> There you go. Now we're learning something about you. Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm blushing now. What is, though, what is the one thing you want women to know about sex? Communicate is what I want them to know. Be open to communicating and the more you do, the better it will be. Know what turns you on and be specific. You know, if someone's doing something to you, because your wonderful bodies are so much more sensitive than ours as men, guys just need to be a lot more gentle and you need to tell them, you know, be gentle now, be harder now, do this here now, do that here now, and feel free to do that. And he will appreciate that as well. So communication, that's probably the main thing. And clearly defining what you want and more importantly, what you don't want and being firm about it. Just do that to start with. (laughs) Dan, that is such good advice. And I tell you what, it's been an absolute eye-opener talking with you, reading your book, because I have to confess, I found myself before I began reading it feeling quite judgmental. Oh, okay. And I thought that's not fair to feel that way because I was thinking, oh, perhaps before I read the book and obviously now talking with you, thinking about what does that mean for the other women in your life and... All of those sorts of things. But then that's more to do with my prejudice beforehand. So you you were concerned about how it would affect my family and the people close to me. Exactly. I was thinking about that, about your ex, well, now ex-wife. And also, I suppose, that preconceived or conception, I think, about the sex industry when it's not all sleazy and exploitative and... It's been an eye-opener for me too, combined with, I mean, I know I'm meant to be interviewing you, but I think about (laughs) it, I think also as women of a sort of certain age, you get to a point where you feel quite uptight about things, you're less free. And because of that, you feel a bit maybe threatened in a way about people who are able to embrace that sexual side of themselves and to be sort of unashamed and unabashed about doing it. Do you mean the clients or the sex work? Both, for right. me. Okay. Because I'm genuinely interested. It's, for me, it's normal. I know there's the stigma, but it's completely normal. So it's fascinating to hear you say that, just because I honestly do, I, I really want to know what, what is the sticking point. You know, is it the fact that I'm a man and I'm arrogantly charging women for sex, or is it that they're, I'm, I'm taking advantage of women or, yeah, I, I'm, I'm honestly curious as to what the wider community do think because for me it is completely normal and acceptable and for my regular clients and for my family, you know, the people that are close to me, it, it is a completely valid and valuable needed job. So, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear that, Jess. But I think too as well it's to do with that whole idea of we don't talk enough about sex and we don't talk enough about... I think probably as women too, what it is we're after, what yeah. we need and what we want. So mm. often there's a shame that comes with that. Your own perception there is a shame, yeah, but there's not. There's really no shame. I don't. Maybe it's a lingering, something lingering from what your mother told you because, you know, mothers and daughters have very unique relationships. You know, they're often quite competitive, I find. 
maybe that's where it comes from. Maybe you're taught to be a little bit ashamed and, and not to think about, you know, what turns you on, you know, what would you like someone to do to your vagina, for example, you know, oh, that's a naughty word. We're not allowed to talk about that, you know, but we should. It's, it's totally fine. It's, it's wonderful. So it's about having the conversations, as you say, communication being key. I look to, I suppose, the next generation of women and men, and they're far more open in terms of how they talk about sex, their sexuality, what they want, what they don't want. I do think it is a lot more open. I think when it comes to identifying themselves sexually and what they, how they feel, Yes, I agree, but I still think those younger ages, those important younger ages, say 15 to 21 sort of thing, there's still very little communication with, and we need to teach them to do that. You know, it's, well, you know, I, I personally don't want a world full of OnlyFans and all that sort of stuff, but I think that just talking one-on-one to each other and, and having an adult conversation as possible at those ages is where it needs to start. I still don't think that's actually happening as much as we'd like to think so. Yeah, I think That's you're right. Yeah. Because again, it's coming from that point of, oh, how do I broach this as a parent? Yeah. What do I do? What do I say? Yeah. You know, I wasn't a huge fan of the Yumi Stein's book, but I think that's a good start. I think um, getting the conversation going is great. Yeah, um, I loved Yumi's book and I think it's a way of having that discussion and doing it yeah. in, a, in a clear, open way as opposed yeah. to kids learning Porn from men wearing berets. And <laughs> <laughs> not, not the ideal one, no. no. But no, that's another thing. Guys need to just realise how unrealistic porn is. You know, it is acting. That's what it is. And young boys need to know that too. Oh, there's just so many things wrong in, in porn, like slapping things on things and just the words that are used. And if that's how they're brought up to think it's going to be, then it's a very unloving world we're going to live in. So, yeah, that's another start. That's something else we need to educate them about. Well, let's bring back the love and the communication and we will with men like you, Dan. Thank you so much. very sweet of you. Thank you. You're so welcome, Jess. Thank you. It's great to chat. I could keep chatting and chatting. I'm intrigued. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as you would have gathered, that was quite a conversation, wasn't it? We covered so much. And I was so looking forward to talking with Mitch, but also it was so good to kind of share with him some of my, I suppose, misconceptions and prejudices that I had about what he did. I think it was really good to be able to air that with him. And I mean, we could have kept the conversation going and we'd love to do a part two. So what do you reckon? Let me know what you think about a part two. Now, Mitch's book, time for her. It's available now at shorelinepublishing.com.au. We'll put a link in the show notes for you. And just quietly, I downloaded it on my Kindle as well, so you can get it there. And if you want to stay up to date with all things Mitch, the best way to do this is by following him on Instagram. And that is at Mr. Mitch underscore Larson or his website, beyouagain.com. Now, I'll be back next week with another beautiful, big conversation with one of my guests. And if you love this conversation with Mitch, why not share it with your girlfriend who might be curious about true intimacy and an exciting sex life? For more big questions like this, subscribe to the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show podcast so you will never, ever miss an episode.